Welcome back to another episode of the My Latin Life podcast. Since 2014, My Latin Life has been your trusted guide to traveling and living in Latin America. Today, I have a guest. His name is Francisco Litvai. He's from Brazil, and he specializes in flag theory and how free and special economic zones can help people with offshoring and internationalization. He's a perpetual traveler. He's opened multiple companies, lived on multiple continents. He's a dual citizen, overall man of the world. Francisco, how's it going, man? All great, man. It's a wonderful day here in uh, Sofia, Bulgaria. And yeah, what about you? I'm doing well, doing well. Thanks for asking. So you're in Bulgaria, but you are a Brazilian. Exactly. I'm from uh, southern Brazil. The state is called Santa Catarina, uh, probably more known by its capital, Florianópolis, big expat hub nowadays. It's really cool to see someone from Latin America who's um, involved in this flag theory stuff, because I find that typically it's all the digital nomads, it's all the North Americans that are looking at Latin America and seeing all the tax benefits and everything. But you're a guy from Latin America and you're looking for ways to do things in your own region. And I feel like there's not enough of that. And so you're bringing these concepts to a Portuguese speaking audience uh, with SETI. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that right and we'll come back to it. But I think it's really cool what you're doing overall. Yeah, and I think it's a somewhat untapped market, right? If you look at the English-speaking sphere, you just have so many content producers on digital nomadism and flag theory and offshoring and all these kinds of things. But when I when I started this company, like, what, one year and nine months ago, so January last year, uh, there isn't really that much. There was, like, I think three, four websites that were more on the you know, open a US LLC or open a Panama account, but not that much on flag theory in general, right? So I think it's still a very much untapped market. Now we're, there's uh, some friends of mine who are also doing it in Spanish uh, called Libre Estado. So like for the Hispanic speakers, but mm-hmm. overall it's, you know, it's, it's a huge continent. And even though a lot of people from who are expats want to move down to Latin America, a lot of Latin America's Latin Americans still have this idea that, oh man, I really want to go to Europe. I really want to go to the US, right? So they all have it in their minds that, yeah, I'm going to make it, you know, if I just go and live in Germany or something like that. So it's kind of an inverse market in uh, in that sense. It's true. I feel like uh, Latin Americans don't realize what they have on their doorstep because when I look at Central Americans, people from Costa Rica, Panama, Honduras, all that type of stuff, I don't see it like, I'm not sure if they're taking advantage of the territorial tax systems the way that the digital nomads are in those countries. Yeah, that's true, right? Most people are just focusing on servicing their own local economy. And that's the thing you do not want to do in a territorial tax country, right? Because then you're going to be taxed at the local income tax rates. And then it's no longer a tax haven. So, you know, it's... And it's, it's just funny because you have to... It's It's been a process that we've been kind of like educating our audience for some time because when we would mention things like, yeah, you should go to, you know, get your residency in Paraguay. When we say that to a Brazilian, immediately the reaction is kind of like, what you're talking about? Like Paraguay is poorer than, than Brazil. Why would I go there? Right. But they, they don't know about the tax advantages and, you know, mm-hmm. how you can get a permanent residency super easy and you don't really have to be there afterwards. So it's perfect for a digital nomad. 
It's true. So uh, for the audience listening, uh, in this episode, we're going to get a lot into talking about different aspects of flag theory, different aspects of how you can internationalize your life. We'll talk uh, in detail about some of the countries uh, that we have uh, additional knowledge on that, w- that we think we can, we can share some information. And we're going to talk about a lot of that stuff. So I think we'll bounce around a bit. But Francisco, I wanted to get a little bit more of your background. I was, I was honestly just curious because you're a young guy and uh, typically you don't see someone so young that's uh, really leading the charge on these things. And I was curious how this all came about for you. My, how I got into this, this field was actually through uh, free private cities. Uh, big, big depth I have to, to Titus Gable and that whole field. So like in, in high school, I was a, a libertarian. And I think that's something you have a lot in Brazil. Like you have a lot of libertarians in Brazil when compared to most other uh, Latin American countries. And I got into this concept of you know, free cities and private governance and, and all of these things. And, you know, I, I went to study in Austria. Uh, I have a Austrian dual citizenship because of my, of my grandpa. And when I was there, I got a, a job offer basically to, to work there. And I applied, I got it. I started then networking into this German speaking uh, libertarian uh, circles, you know. And there I met uh, Christoph Heuermann, who was also uh, an ambassador to the Free Private Cities Foundation. And he, for those who, who are listening who don't know him, he founded Statenlos, which is the biggest uh, brand for flag theory in German. And he's crazy perpetual traveler, right? He's been, I think, to 190 something countries by now. And mm-hmm. so like since 2020, I've been just devouring every everything that I can find on flag theory and nomadism and traveling and taxes. And then, yeah, early last year, we decided to, to partner up and start offering these same things for the Portuguese speaking market. That's really cool to see that you have that, that background with Statenlos. Um, maybe you could tell us a bit more about what this group is, because I know they're extremely influential. We talked a little bit about it in my episode with, uh, with Ramon, a.k.a. RG, which I think was episode 9 or 10. Uh, who was uh, he, he's a Swiss guy that was very influenced by this German language Statenlos organization. Maybe you could tell us a bit more about it. Yeah, so Statenlos is a is a franchise by now, right? It's already in six languages, but it's focused on flag theory consulting, and it was in the beginning to help Germans and Austrians and Swiss uh, optimize their taxes and leave their tax system and go to tax havens, all, all of these kinds of things. And by now, it already has a lot of uh, different branches to it, right? Like we were, we also have a big uh, international insurance branch. Uh, there's also, Chris even bought a, a catamaran where he's chartering like for, for nomads as well. So it's uh, now it's a, it's a bunch of different projects uh, under, under this one brand. But it's at its core, it's a consulting and infomercial business for in the flag theory space. And so what do they do exactly? Like what services do they provide? You mentioned insurance. Obviously, they share information. And I know they have a really popular Facebook group. Uh, what else do they do? I mean, I would say the main service that they offer and we also offer in Portuguese is the consultancy, right? Where we basically 
get a, a detailed overview of the personal situation of the client, right? Like his citizenship, his profession, what sources of income he has, what are his objectives, uh, what are his life plans, and then see how we can craft um, a flag theory plan around it, right? Like what citizenships would make sense, what residencies would make sense, what companies would make sense, given the residency options that he's considering and how these things um you know, affect each other, right? Because, for example, the the company part, you can't just go opening a company anywhere. Like if you live in the European Union, for example, there's a lot of uh, restrictions on having companies in tax havens, for example. Mm-hmm. So, you know, really need to know how, how these things um, affect each other. It does seem, though, that the German market, uh, this works really well for, and I've definitely seen lots of Germans, Swiss and Australians or Austrians rather, uh, kind of take advantage of different systems, move to Latin America, get set up, get tax residency in Latin America, and successfully leave Europe. Yeah, because these two countries, Austria and Germany, and actually Brazil as well, um, has this advantage that they have a system where you can do like a... uh, this, they call it Abmeldung in German, which is the like deregistration kind of. Like you can get out of their tax net without becoming a tax resident somewhere else, right? In, in most other countries, you generally need to show uh, that you have a new residency before they will let you off the hook, right? So if you're a Portuguese, for example, you need to show a new tax ID in a new jurisdiction so that Portugal will stop taxing you. But not for Germany, not for Austria, not for Brazil. You can just leave and say, hey, I've departed. I'm no longer living here. Leave me alone, <laughs> right? And they'll, and they'll do it. So while Germany and Austria are tax hells, right? They have very uh, terrible taxes and a lot of like, terrible regulations for doing business inside the country. Uh, it's very easy to leave. So that makes it quite for a now. good place to start as a nomad. <laughs> for yeah. Now. And um, tell us a little bit more about Statenlos. And the reason I ask is because I just know it's very influential. And I think that sort of like the next generation of uh, internationalizers and flag theory people, I think a lot of them are going to come out of Statenlos. Uh, would you agree with that? And how, how do you trace sort of like the intellectual uh, line of thinking from like who influenced Statenlos, who influenced the founder, and then how... How is his influence being felt now that they've been around a number of years and the next generation's coming out? Oh man, that's a that's like an academic historian question. Oh, a little the... bit, a little bit. Because who, <laughs> who else is going to give us the the history of this stuff? You know? Yeah, like the from Staatenlos, at least from from what I've talked to Chris, he's a uh, he's been influenced a lot by the, let's say, OGs of remote work and uh, digital nomadism, like Tim Ferriss, and also the, uh, I think it was like Schultz, his name, the the guy who first coined the three-flag theory. Yeah, and the guy who first coined the three-flag theory, and then the other one, I think, Hey G. Hill or something Mm -hmm. like that for the five-flag theory. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then other guys who were, you know, starting early in the space, like Doug Casey, and then nowadays we also have like a lot of uh, really good connections to other people in the space. Like for example, Mikkel from Expat Money, good friend mm-hmm. of ours. So you know, it's 
there's a lot of um, idea exchanges uh, somehow in, in this space, a lot of people talking to each other, which is good. I think it's, um, you know, there's a lot of agencies and, and companies that try to keep info more for themselves. So it's really nice to see a lot of people just, you know, sharing and um, publishing a lot of alpha online. Yeah, I think it's pretty new, the, this idea that most people are starting to give away the secrets, because I think even a couple of years ago, it was very difficult to get a lot of this information. Yeah, that's true. And like the offshore space, uh, when you're talking about like foundations and trusts and, you know, private banking. And so it, it is kind of shrouded in mystery, right? Like you have a lot of these myths of, uh, oh, I'm going to get a Swiss bank account and it's going to be a numbered uh, account and no one's going to know who the owner is. And, you know, in reality, you no know, Switzerland actually exchanges banking info. So <laughs> um, if you want privacy, it's counterintuitive. But, you know, you go to Paraguay, you go to Sao Tome, you go to Honduras, you know, countries that are not in the in the CRS, countries that don't exchange uh, info multilaterally. So it's uh, mm -hmm. it's also, you know, breaking a lot of these myths, these established uh, truths or like half-truths and sharing a lot of these things that are just under the radar, right? Like a lot of people just don't know uh, that some countries can act as tax havens or can act as uh, privacy havens. Yeah, and I, I, we'll definitely circle back to a list of countries that you wouldn't normally think about that actually have some really cool stuff. I think the non-DOM stuff is very cool. Of course, the, the special economic zones are cool, the territorial tax. So um, we'll definitely come back to that. Um, tell me a little bit more about SETI. So this is your project uh, for the Portuguese speaking market that is uh, inspired by Statenlos. Uh, it's it's spelled uh, S-E-T-T-E-E. -E -E. Um, uh, so you founded this project, right? Yeah, so here's the business idea. Get get the pitch. Uh, I was talking to to Chris, and he said, uh, like, I was looking at his websites, and he already had a website in German, in uh, English, in Spanish, in French, in Russian, and I was looking at like, Chris, why don't you have a website in Portuguese as well, man? You know, it's 200 million Brazilians, and a lot of them want to leave. And you know, whenever there's elections, a lot of them are panicking and thinking, look. Oh my God, I need to find a plan B. And he, he just tells me like, you know, so far there, there was one guy that wanted to execute on that idea, but he didn't move forward. And, you know, since we know each other and like we already have a, like a, a relationship, you can, you know, you can go ahead, you can try it. Uh, so we, we worked out the, the details of the, like this, like this franchise agreement where they would provide the content and we would provide some uh, commissions from them for providing like the, you know, the eBooks and the blog articles, which we translated. And then I reached out to, to another guy called Rafael Lima. Uh, if you're Brazilian, you probably know him from the YouTube channel Ideas Hajikais. It's like, I think the biggest libertarian channel in the world by now, it's like 600,000 subscribers, something. So, or second biggest, something like that. Okay. But then I talked to him like, Rafael, we already knew each other for, for some years already as well. I was like, dude, the, you know, there's this business idea. There's this content here. Like I see that there's not really that much competition in, in the Portuguese speaking realm. But also what I, I knew from Christoph is that he started 
in 2015, something like that. And he had to grind a lot, right? He spent years just writing articles and, you know, engaging with the community and all of these things before he got any real traction, right? Nowadays, he does a lot of consultancy, like every day has multiple consultings, but... You know, during the early stage, it's something that really takes a lot of time so you can get some credibility, to get some reputation, to get the business going, right? And then I had the idea to partner with Raphael, who already has an established name, who already has an established brand, and, you know, like kind of co-branded with his channel. Mm -hmm. So that was the idea for for the launch and and how to make it. Uh, We... (laughs) The story of of how we how we launched was also quite quite fun because we're you know we already had an agreement okay we're, that's how we're gonna do it and we're already creating the website and you know the the systems and and everything and then this was I think March of last year March 2021 and then comes this news that Lula the previous president who was actually uh, you know convicted of corruption and went to jail and and all of these things that the Supreme Court had kind of annulled his condemnation so that he could run again for president. And Rafa reached out to me that day and he said, can we launch today? I was like, you know, the the website is, there's still a lot of things that need work on, but, you know, like the checkout is working and, you know, the contact form is working. And he's like, all right, let's do this. We did the the launch with a video and, and everything like that. And, you know, there was just so much outrage, so much like, how can this possibly be happening that we got something like a thousand emails in three days and we had like two people to answer the emails. Like it was complete shutdown. Like we had to write on all social media, like, hey, guys, we're going to answer everyone, please, please. Uh, You know, just just give us a moment. We're a bit overloaded here. We had to bring in additional people. So, you know, that was uh, quite fun uh, timing as well. But yeah, that's so that's the main uh, gist of it. We help Brazilians and also Portuguese people uh, move abroad and get second citizenships and uh, pay less taxes. Also very important. Yeah, yeah, that's that's awesome. Um, yeah, there's so many directions we could we could take this conversation. But um, yeah, t- I guess let's just start with that. I mean, so what would you recommend to a Brazilian who uh, engages your guys' services? Obviously, it's going to depend a little bit on some of the specifics of their situation. But do you find that there's a couple uh, key pieces of infrastructure that are are that work well for most Brazilians? Mm-hmm. Yeah, here here we have to distinguish, right? Because there is two main kinds of clients we get. There's the client that, man, I love Brazil, like lifestyle here, quality of life here is unbeatable. I have beach, I have uh, barbecue, I have everything I want, but I want to. don't want to pay so much tax. And there's the people who actually want to leave, right? For the people who want to stay, there are a couple things that, that you can mention. Uh, first, Brazil has a number of special regimes for companies, right? Normal companies in Brazil pay a shit ton of tax, but if you're in the um, if you're in the simplified regime, uh, which is up to 4.8 million uh, reais turnover, so like something like almost a, a million dollars turnover per year, you can a lot of times stay with quite a decent amount of tax, like between you know like six and twenty percent. For most, um, you know, self-employed solo entrepreneurs, and that's like tax on turnover. And then when you distribute dividends, there's no tax on internal dividends in Brazil. So that's a that's a nice feature. 
And if you're bigger than that, or if the simplified regime is not uh, making sense that much, they also have a, a special regime called lucro presumido, which is like on you get taxed on the presumed profit. So they apply some some rates to determine what would be the presumed mm -hmm. profit of your field of business. And then like if you're doing services, in many cases, you can end up with like 15% tax uh, total, which is still, you know, quite good if you compare to like Western Europe, uh, in most countries there. Mm -hmm. And that's from the inside, I guess, like that's within the Brazilian system. Uh, we can also mention that currently Brazil doesn't really have uh, CFC rules, like controlled foreign company rules for individuals. So it's, it's still quite easy to just live in Brazil and own a holding company in the Bahamas or in Panama or in whatever tax haven you choose. And then as long as you don't distribute money to yourself, that's tax-free, right? So you can invest abroad in, you know, crypto, in uh, stocks or whatever you want. As long as you keep that outside of Brazil, you don't bring it home, uh, it's not going to get taxed. So you can like co compound your investments abroad tax-free quite easily. And then when you leave, there's no exit tax either at the moment. So you know, if you ever exit Brazil, uh, they're not taking a cut of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I think anyone that's listening... Um maybe they're not interested in maybe they're not brazilian or they're not interested in living in brazil but a lot of what uh might apply in brazil there'd be sort of like the theory can be reapplied elsewhere so anyone listening that's not interested in the particular country that we're discussing just know that a lot of the theories will apply to other countries as well and other countries have economic zones other countries have like interesting uh, incentives for, for new companies and things like that. So everything can often be reapplied or you can use this lens and, and use the same lens elsewhere. I think that's probably worth mentioning. Oh yeah, for sure. And here we can give a lot of examples even uh, within Latin America, right? So Brazil has uh, these free zones and export processing zones as well, but that's something you have in basically all of uh, Latin America. So if you go to Uruguay, for example, and you open a, a free zone company there, it's going to be completely tax-free as long as you don't sell within Uruguay. So if your clients are abroad, you know you have 0% tax on your profit and 0% tax on your dividends. Congratulations. And like even in the, in the bigger countries that don't have a territorial tax regime like Brazil, like Colombia, like Mexico, you still have these simplified regimes for small companies under a certain turnover, right? So in Colombia, you have this uh, simple uh, regime, which is like until I think $850,000 uh, turnover per year. And then you pay like between... 1.8 and 11.6, I think, uh, percent tax on your turnover, right? So for local uh, service business or for, you know, just doing uh, as, as a self-employed, basically. And same thing in Mexico, right? You have like this Regimen uh, Simplificado de Confianza, which is, I think, between something like 1.5 and 2.5% tax uh, up to 180K dollars turnover per year. So... You know, whenever you're going to a country that you're planning on staying a longer term for, check out if they have some special economic zones, you know, Zonas Francas, any any of those names, and check out if they have any simplified regimes for small companies under a certain turnover. Generally, you can get good conditions in there. What 
mostly where you get screwed up is if you're a mid-sized business and you can't uh, benefit from the big companies regime and the free zones, nor the simplified regimes for the smaller companies, right? So if you're really big or if you're still small, you can generally get some good conditions. But if you're in the middle, uh, then that's not really the best place to be in most cases. Yeah, definitely makes sense. Um, I have another personal misconception that I wanted to share, and and you could help kind of break it down. And that is sort of uh, my misconception that these things need to be in some way physical businesses. Because I'm thinking, okay, special economic zones. They're typically there's typically a port, and and they sort of like section off a little like port land of the country and say, that's the special economic zone. <laughs> um, I, I guess that's not always the case, but I, I think often is uh, in Colombia or sorry, in uh, Panama, that's the case. And so I'm thinking about ports and I'm thinking about physical businesses, but I assume it, it the business doesn't have to do anything physical at all, right? It could always just be like a ebook company or, or whatever sort of online company and take advantage of these special economic zone uh, incentives, right? Okay, so that depends, right? That depends on the jurisdiction, right? Zones can take many shapes and sizes. Sometimes you have like free ports, which is, you know, more for logistics and import-export. Uh, you have these export processing zones, which are more like industrial parks. You have zones for like energy production. You have zones for like really manufacturing intensive things. But you also have zones which are business parks, for example, right? So the World Trade Center in Montevideo is, um, is a free zone. Or you also have like a lot of these business parks in uh, Honduras. So it depends on the place, on the jurisdiction. For example, Brazil, until last year, until the reform of the export processing zone regime, they only allowed production businesses, right? So in that case, yeah, you needed to be exporting something physical. Now they also allow service businesses as well. So you can also, you know, just be doing, I don't know, uh, some kind of service export, like IT services uh, to clients abroad. Mm -hmm. One thing you have to note for special economic zones, though, is that they generally have some kind of like local substance requirement that the work has to be done from inside the zone. Right. So you actually need an office there. Uh, you actually need to have at least one employee working there. That's at least the rule for Uruguay, for example, at least one person working within uh, mm -hmm. an office inside the zone. And mm -hmm. depending on where you're at, it's more depending on where you're at. Uh, maybe you don't even need any employees. So that's something that varies from country to country. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk a bit more about special economic zones, and then we'll kind of move on and talk about territorial tax. We'll talk about birth tourism. We'll talk about non-DOM status and a couple different popular countries. But let's double down on special economic zones for a minute. So I think uh, through uh, something I read through your profiles, there's over 5,000 special economic zones now across 170 countries? Yeah, so the number um, depends on how you want to count it, right? Like we created this map called the Open Zone Map at the Adrianopo Group, another company that I'm uh, involved in. And there we mapped 5,500 zones across over 70 countries. But... This was counting like more, more like major zones. But if you were to count single factory zones, like the Latin American maquilas, which is basically like you can have a single building be a special economic zone, right? Like you have mm -hmm. this, uh, this 
one uh, this one building be a zone with tax incentives, and once you exit the building, it's no not a free zone. Uh, and if you count like PO box zones that it, like you have in the United States, where you don't really have a physical location, it's just a you know it's just like a, a zip code, uh, then you can have like over twelve thousand zones uh, worldwide. So we use like five thousand five hundred for you know major zones that actually have a physical location where you can have multiple companies um, inside it. Right, it's not just a single factory that is a special economic zone. It's it's just so crazy, man. Because these special economic zones, uh, uh, they have the ability to create laws. Oftentimes, they have significant autonomy from the federal government, and you have five thousand plus of these zones all around the world that basically operate to some extent autonomous uh, from their countries. And it, it it's just a lot to keep track of at the <laughs> at the global level. Because you just have all these like new moving parts. You thought, you know, people thought they only had 200 countries to manage and whatever. <laughs> but now you have all these economic zones and it's, um, uh, there's just so many additional variables, so many opportunities. Um, obviously, this seems to be growing a lot. Yeah, I don't think it's something that like one person or one company can keep track of. Like it's it's impossible. Uh, some countries have multiple zone regimes at the same time. So right, Brazil, for example, has a free zone regime and an export processing zone regime. And they're not the same. They have different tax incentives. They have different regulations. Uh, so, you know, you're, you're not going to be able to keep track of everything. But you can, uh, you know, be aware and follow some of the most uh, prominent, some of the most interesting Right, like for example, the you know the zones in Madeira or the UAE, which are very famous, or uh, the Zedis in Honduras, which also got a lot of uh, of traction. So, yeah, like you know, you, you can keep track of the more interesting ones because a lot of these like are just simple export processing zones or free trade zones, which is you know, oh yeah, you're not going to pay um, import and export tariffs. Right. That's that's the majority of them, which have some light regulatory tax uh, labor law benefits. But you do have some of them and, you know, at least over 100 where you have real some real regulatory changes or freedoms that, for example, like you can try um, medical things that are not allowed in the in the rest of the country or people can enter that part of the country visa free while the rest you still have to order have to get a normal visa so, see that's I, crazy that's crazy yeah so why don't you outline for us these special economic zones what are some of the most common privileges that they have uh, over the traditional regime and some of the some of the crazy things where they have the ability to make laws, they can do potentially uh, their own visa rules and immigration rules. Um, talk to us a bit about uh, what these special economic zones entail. All right. So if we're talking the more common um, benefits, we can mention, for example, reductions or completely cutting off um, taxes, like corporate taxes on the profits, you can get lower taxes on withholdings, right? So when you're distributing dividends or royalties or uh, interest to other countries. So for example, in Portugal, when you try to distribute dividends normally, you have a 28% that is withheld at source, sorry, at 25. 
And when you distribute it from the Madeira free zone, it's zero, right? So you have a lot of these tax benefits. Uh, sometimes you have easier or faster regulations for bringing in foreign workers or for, you know, getting yourself a known visa. So, for example, in the UAE, if you open a free zone company, you can sponsor your own visa as the company owner, right? So you just have to open the company, then you can get a, a three-year um, visa, and you can even bring in your family, right? You can bring dependents there as well. So it's a, it o- opens up immigration options to that country mm-hmm. without having mm-hmm. to do like a substantial investment. You just have to open a company and keep it, uh, keep it running with an active license. Um, what else? You can get some currency simplifications so that you know you have freely, free convertibility of currency. That's something you do not have in every country. Uh, you can get better infrastructure sometimes. So generally these zones are in industrial or business parks. So they also get benefits like, you know, cheaper electricity or just more reliable and faster mm. internet. Uh, so for people with, you know, logistical or infrastructure concerns, these are generally the best equipped places to do business within a given country. Um, and if you want to go on the more crazy side of things, so for example, uh, China made the entire island of Hainan a uh, special economic zone. And for Hainan, you can go in visa-free for 30 days. Uh, you know, if you're from one of the, I think, 60-something nationalities that was allowed. So mm-hmm. that's very impressive, right? You know, it's not impressive for most of, of the countries where you can just go in uh, 90 days visa-free. But for China, where basically everyone <laughs> needs to get a visa, uh, that's actually a, a big improvement. Right. And that's a good point. And in some countries also have some more regulatory freedom. So, for example, now in the Brazilian export processing zone, since the last reform uh, from from last year, you can operate using the regulatory code of the countries that you're exporting products or services to. Right. So if you don't want to use the Brazilian regulatory system because you think it's too bureaucratic, uh, too complicated to use, then if you're exporting services to an American company, you, you can just use the regulatory code of the U.S. to operate. So that's a big advantage, for example. Or you can you know, use arbitration instead of the standard courts uh, in the country. You have a lot of these zones with uh, you know, good arbitration panels like the, um, like the Dubai uh, zones, the Dubai courts. You have also in Abu Dhabi, the Abu Dhabi International uh, financial center. You have it in um, in Kazakhstan, for example. They also created this common law uh, arbitration center in Astana, the capital. So you know, just for resolving disputes faster, cheaper, and with just overall a better, a more business friendly rule set. And yeah, if you want to look at the the ones that have a lot of regulatory freedom, you can look, for example, in Honduras with this ZEDE regime. Uh, for example, Prosper is the, is the most well-known one, although you have three of these zones in total, where they're subject to the Constitution of Honduras, they're subject to the Honduran constitutional law, and they're subject to the Honduran, um, um, sorry, to the criminal law and to the international treaties, right? So they have to respect any human rights treaties. But besides that, they can create all of their business law and you know, it's like they're their own... Uh, municipality, right? But with a lot more autonomy, they can basically create all of the rules except for criminal law 
and they can't go against the constitution. But besides that, you have complete freedom. So, you know, these guys, for example, in Prospera are operating under a common law regulatory code that they mm-hmm. built, mm-hmm. like just taking the best practices from the US and from New Zealand and from the UK. And that makes it way faster and cheaper and simpler to do business or, you know, even uh, get a building permit, that kind of thing. So that's also really awesome. Yeah, this this Prospera project seems really interesting. So this is in Honduras, I think primarily on the island of Roatan. Um, did did they carve out a physical part of the island or is it the whole island? Yeah, it's a part of the island that is the, the Zeti at the moment. It's not something that is like, you know, there's fences and they're carving out something that is to be completely excluded from the local <laughs> population. No, they're actually, you know, they interact a lot with the... Uh, with the the people in in Roatan and they do a lot of of actions there. So props to them. Uh, But, you know, the the way the Zeti regime works is that anyone who has a private uh, plot of land can ask to be annexed to one of the existing Zetis, right? So, you know, like if you have a big plot that is neighboring Prospera, you can, hey, I I would like to be under their regulatory uh, system. You, You know, you can send them a petition and if they approve it, you know, you're, you can be part of the zone. So they already, they put this mechanism, which is very organic for growth, right? Which is something that it is a best practice, right? If you see a lot of these special economic zones, uh, the way the, the government created the, um, the system for these zones to be established, something like, oh yeah, the federal government is going to designate the zones that it thinks are, you know, that, that should have a special economic zone. And then it's generally in the middle of nowhere uh, where it's super poor and there is horrible logistics, but, you know, the government sees that, oh, this is a zone that is not really well developed. So we're going to put a zone to develop it. Uh, but, you know, sometimes these places are less developed because it's just logistically <laughs> impossible to do business well. And when you have these countries that are more flexible in establishing zones, then generally you get more success as well. Mm-hmm. So what are they doing in Roatan specifically? Uh, who's, who's behind that project and what's their vision? So this is probably someone you, you should also bring to the podcast as well. I think they would be very open to, to that conversation. But um, Prospera is run by an American company called Prospera Incorporated. I don't remember the state they're in. I think maybe taxes or something like that. But in, in any case, an American company. And they're creating this platform basically to, you know, to do business. They have this e-residence platform. Uh, They're already also doing a lot of real estate development there with these like Duna residencies, which are, you know, apartments for co-working and so on. So they're focusing a lot more on the, on the expat side, on the nomad side, on the international service providing side, right? So they're, they're doing a lot of focus on this, like getting local Hondurans, to provide services to companies and people in the US and Europe, right? So they're more geared on the services, tourism, uh, nomad um, space. Whereas for example, if you look at Ciudad Morazan, which is another Zeti in the mainland, they are already much more focused on blue collar work, right? Like they're bringing in factories and their focus is much more on, yeah, we're gonna create this safe city, our main, you know, value prop is security and a place where you can work and have a job, right? So it's, you already see two of these zones that have completely different value propositions and, you know, both are uh, running now. 
I mean, sounds good to me, man. Safer, lower electricity, lower taxes. <laughs> the benefits keep going. And I, I thought it'd be cool to, to read off some more of these. Uh, but before I do, I wanted to clarify a term you're using. You're saying ZE, so like Zona Economica, or what, what's that term you're using? Oh, yeah. So that is the name of the of the special economic zone regime they have in Honduras. It's called Zona de Empleo e Desarrollo Económico, which is like zone for uh, employment okay. and economic development. Right. Okay. Um, Z-E-E-E. Z-E-D-E. Gotcha. Z-E. Yeah. Z-E. Z-E. Cool. And then you have like the Zona Franca in Barcelona. There's a uh, Le Verdon free zone in Bordeaux, France. <laughs> um, I'll read a couple more because I think it's funny. The Kaunas free zone in what country is this? Lithuania, uh, Hainan. We got, I saw re- Katowice, Katowice. What country is this? Katowice, yeah, the, the one Poland. in Poland. Mm-hmm. Inside um, the European Union, you have mostly just free zones, right? Like you don't have uh, uh, these more advanced kind of like charter cities or these kind of things. It's mostly just free zones. It's these ports for import and export, uh, with the exception of the Canaries and Madeira, where you actually have some more uh, nice. Yeah, stuff. that's interesting. I don't. Uh, another one. This is my favorite one. Is uh, the the Giza Gizak Economic Zone in Uzbekistan. Uh, so if you want to set up in Uzbekistan, make sure you're going to the GZAK free economic zone, G I Z Z A K H. (laughs) And so there's just unlimited of these Makassar free zone. Where is this man on the Indonesian Island of Sulawesi? Like, how can you keep track of all these things? Every Indonesian Island has its own free zone. There's like 5,000 islands. There's just so many, um, Sorry, I'm getting like sidetracked. That map took uh, around two years to make, and it was like forty people working on the project. It was, it was quite a quite a task. <laughs> it's insane. Coyol free zone in Costa Rica. I haven't even heard a lot of these Latin American ones. That's crazy. Um, so basically, long story short, it seems like basically every country is a free zone. One thing that's cool about it for Europeans, as you're kind of alluding to, is in Europe. There's not a lot of opportunities to stay in Europe and reduce your taxes significantly. Obviously, there's a few people know about things like Bulgaria, where you are, Portugal, um, the the uh, the islands, as you mentioned. But there's it's very difficult to sort of move to a, a territorial tax hub or a really good tax base and stay in Europe. And I think these free economic zones or special economic zones. Uh, that seems to be the path forward for a lot of Europeans that want to stay based in Europe and, um, you know, take advantage of some of the programs out there. Yeah, because when you're living in Europe, when you're in, and by Europe, I mean like the European Union, right? If you're in Georgia, that's a territorial tax country too. It's more relaxed. Uh, But if you're in the European Union, then what generally makes the most sense is to have another company inside the European Union, right? That's where you get the least stress with the financial authorities and the haciendas and and Mm -hmm. all these things. Uh, And then inside the EU, the special economic zones of Portugal and Spain are some of the most tax competitive uh, companies you can get, right? And in Madeira, you have like 5% corporate tax, 
And in uh, the canneries, you have 4% uh, corporate tax. So that's very low, right? You only get less than that if you're in uh, Romania, for example, where you have 1% tax on turnover, but that's only until 500K turnover uh, per year, right? Under micro companies regime. Technically, you can have three micro companies, so it's 1.5 million. But, you know, after that, it, you're limited, right? It's, it's for small, mid-sized, whereas in uh, Madeira and in Spain, you can have a bigger turnover than that. And so how would something like that work in Madeira or in the Canary Islands? Is there a physical presence requirement? Um, how can Europeans go get set up on the islands? Uh, maybe they want to live there, enjoy some good weather, or they just want to uh, set up a base. How, what, what are some of the, you know, the detailed aspects of that? Mm -hmm. So in terms of like personal taxes, there is not really uh, much of a difference in going to canneries or going to, to Madeira in comparison to their mainlands. What you have really that is special there is the company's regime, right? Like in these special economic zones, you can get a very low tax companies. So in terms of moving, you know, you can just move to Spain or Portugal, just like mainland or the islands, not going to make too much of a difference. And then if you're European, you already can move out of the European Union Freedom of Movement Agreement. But if you're not, you know, Portugal has a lot of these options. We can talk about that later. And then in terms of the companies, there are some requirements to, to establish them. Madeira is a bit easier. You have to have at least one local employee receiving a Portuguese minimum salary, which is around like 700 something euros last time I checked. And you also have to invest 75,000 euros in the company within the first, uh, I think, two years of business. Mm -hmm. And then in the Canary Islands, it's a bit more restrictive. You have to have uh, either five employees if you're in the main islands of Tenerife and Gran Canaria, or three employees if you're in the smaller islands, and invest between 50 to 100K, depending if you're in the main islands or the small islands. So right. generally, Madeira is easier to, to set up. Um, and then, yeah, you have 5% uh, corporate tax and no withholdings on the dividends if you don't live in Portugal or a tax haven country, according to Portugal. Yeah, that's nice. I mean, it sounds like for a lot of people, it could be a no brainer. I mean, 75K investment, uh, hire some guy for 700 bucks a month, call it 10K a year, really not a big deal. And then you get to take advantage of this, this regi regime under which you can pay 5% instead of whatever 30% you were paying back in back in France or something like that. So it seems like it's a no brainer for it, it could be for a lot of situations. What do you what do you see as some of the most common situations for people who are setting up in these free zones? Do you find that they're they are a certain are, are they starting new businesses? Or are they starting sort of branch offices of existing businesses? Um, are they people who are moving sort of within their own country or are they sort of sidestepping to other countries uh you know in the european union or internationally what, what, what are you kind of seeing there in terms of the type of people that this attracts and works best for mm -hmm. so madeira at the moment is doing a lot to try to attract startups so i've already talked to some brazilians for example that went into accelerator programs to get into madeira Right. So that's something that they're trying to do. But you have a lot of different businesses there, right? Like outsourcing uh, service businesses, even import export services, um, you know, just 
it's also a free port. So if you're doing something with physical products, it's uh, it's also a possibility. It doesn't make too much sense, though, if you're living in Portugal to have a Madeira company or if you're living in Spain to have a Canaries company, because then the dividends are taxed at the normal Portuguese uh, slash Spanish rates. Right. So these really uh, are they're a better tax option if you're not living in their country, right? So if you live, for example, in Cyprus and then you have a Madeira company, or if you're living, you know, in in Brazil or Georgia or somewhere else, and then you have a Madeira company, then if you're living in Portugal itself, right? So in, it's generally more on the people that are somewhere else in Europe, and then they have this um, this special economic zone company in, in one of the islands. Makes sense. And do you find that these economic zones, like I, I imagine because it's just so new that they're going to be changing a lot. They're going to be changing their rules to conform to their systems or to attract people, etc. So it seems like there might be a bit of a risk that it just could be less stable um, in terms of, you know, sort of predicting where things are going to be in a couple years in terms of hiring laws and taxes and this and that. Uh, do you find are people like locking in particular agreements or do they have to just say like, look, I'm I'm attaching myself to this economic zone and, and whatever they they go with, I, I got to adapt to that. Or can they say can they sort of like get it on paper and say, OK, we're going to maintain this five percent tax rate for for 10 years or something? Mm hmm. That is a great point that you brought up, because uh, this is um, there's both upsides and downsides to being in a zone in terms of the like um, in, in just just in terms of uh, legal certainty right a lot of these zones have better rules than the rest of their country in terms of for example in Uruguay uh, it says that even if the the zone law is repealed or if there is a change to the tax benefits that the companies in the zones are still like they're grandfathered in for 25 years right that you still get to keep the the original benefits. Of course, mm -hmm. then if it's a country that uh, there is zero trust in the country, right? Like, I don't know, some uh, very, very low rule of law, then yeah, maybe they go against what they said and you still have to pay taxes anyway. Uh, that's not something you expect out of Uruguay, though. It's more of a, it's like one of the more stable, uh, higher rule of law countries in LATAM. So, you know, generally you have more legal security in the zone than with normal companies in the country. Uh, that's for sure. But at the same time, a lot of countries do have these uh, temporary benefits, right? So it's it's not forever. In the case of Madeira, for example, they have their special status uh, officially approved by the European Union until 2027. And then after that, it's supposed to end and you're going to just pay like a normal Portuguese company. So, you know, they kind of uh, attract you and they kind of lock you in. You know, you already did this big investment and you already have an accounting company and you already paid the, the money to incorporate it and went through all the bureaucracy. Then maybe by 2027, uh, when the incentives end, then you don't want to relocate, relocate again. Right. So... You, you do have a lot of zones that have temporary tax benefits. And if I remember correctly, Costa Rica is the same, right? They have some some benefits for like five or 10 years and then uh, they're gone. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I, I think we'll move on because I don't want to spend the whole episode on special economic zones because it's just an insane can of worms. But it's a topic <laughs> that uh, it's nice to know that you're an expert on and we'll continue to support each other in the future and talk about it. And maybe I'll get some some more people on to talk specifically about it um maybe i can get the prospera guys uh as well so lots of good ideas there 
So that's um, special economic zones. Maybe next, let's talk about, uh, I guess, you know, the most standard form of this, uh, which is territorial tax systems. And that's something that um, we've talked a lot about uh, on Twitter, you and I, and we, we, you know, we've each done lots of threads and try to educate people about this. So could you explain the, the significance of a territorial tax system and how someone could reduce their taxes potentially uh, by switching to a territorial tax uh, residency? Sure. So let's get to the basics first. Territorial tax system or you know, just the principle of territoriality is that a country taxes what is considered to be locally sourced income. And it does not tax what is considered to be foreign sourced income. So let's say that all your com- all your um, revenues come from Panama, and you are a Panamanian. Uh, then, and you're living in Panama. And then, if you have this income, it's going to be considered locally sourced income. You're going to pay income tax normally. But then, if you move to Costa Rica, or if you move to Nicaragua, or basically anywhere in Central America. Uh, they also have a territorial tax system. So there, the income is considered to be foreign sourced, and then it's not going to be taxed. And because there are enough territorial tax uh, countries that, you know, you have a lot of options to choose from, there's always a place you could go where your income is not going to be considered to be uh, locally sourced. So you can potentially reduce your taxes to zero uh, like this. So that's the easiest trick used by digital nomads or expats, right? Like, oh, you have the, your clients in the U.S., uh, you move to Panama, and then you have like a U.S. LLC, which distributes you these profits, which are then tax-free in Panama, right? So like that's uh, becoming tax-free 101. Uh, that's the basics of territorial tax system, of course. Then there's also like the, the nuances of what is really considered to be local sourced income, what is foreign sourced income. Uh, some countries vary on that. And there's a lot of specificities that we could go into. Yeah, um, I actually wouldn't mind knowing that because I don't I don't know where some of that gray area is. So what where where are the gotchas around uh determining what's locally sourced versus um, internationally sourced or foreign sourced? Okay, so generally speaking, um, things like local rents, local capital gains, uh, local salaries, local self-employment income is uh, considered to be locally sourced income, right? So in a territorial tax country, uh, if you're receiving a salary from your from your own company, let's say, even if the company is abroad, uh, in a lot of cases, the salary is considered to be a source of local income because it implies that you're doing work, right? That you're doing work. Right. If, if you get paid to a bank account locally, I guess. Uh, that that depends again, but the the point is like a salary is considered to be an, like an active kind of uh, income where it implies that you're doing local uh, work, right? Whereas for example, dividends basically everywhere they're they're always considered to be uh, foreign sourced income in like almost all countries. So income that income sources that are more passive like dividends, like royalties, like interest. 
like uh, pensions, these kinds of things, they're almost always considered to be foreign sourced, uh, where salary and self-employment income, a lot of times they are considered to be local sourced, even if you're providing services to clients abroad, right? So if you're in Uruguay and you register as self-employed and you're providing services to a company in, uh, I don't know, Argentina, um, since the work is being done in Uruguay, like, and the income is coming from self-employment, then you're going to be taxed still. But if you had, for example, a foreign company distributing you dividends, then uh, that's a different situation. Yeah, I, I, I like how you mentioned uh, that it's important where you do the work and where the work is performed, because I think that's what can get digital nomads caught up specifically, where let's say, um, you know, they're, they're they're getting paid to a Dubai company. Uh, everything's going through Dubai, but they're performing the work or they're like living in Germany or they're living in XYZ country. Let's just say they're living in another territorial tax country. They're living in Panama and they're performing the work um, and they're living there year round. I, I see a lot of room for gray area there and in interpretation by tax authorities to say, well, well, look, you perform, you perform the work in our country more than six months of the year. So technically it should be locally sourced. And I think that right now people aren't smart about it uh, in terms of uh, all the participants in the system. But I think eventually over time, I think there's going to be an increased emphasis on on where the work is performed and using that as sort of a, a vector. Yeah. No, for sure, I think. And you already have some countries that pay more attention to it and mention it explicitly, right? So Uruguay is one of them. Uh, Hong Kong and Singapore also, they have this territorial um, principle for, for their companies, but they apply the same thing, right? Like where was the work done? Uh, if it was done from Hong Kong, even if to a foreign client, then it's still you know locally sourced. So that's something you have to pay attention to. Some countries, like, for example, Panama is very relaxed about this. They mentioned that anything that comes from a, a foreign uh, paying source, that's that's foreign. So that's more relaxed. But, you know, you have to be aware of these distinctions. And you also have to be aware of, you know, it's not always that the, the territorial system applies forever or for everyone. So, for example, Philippines is a country that is territorial for expats, but not for locals. I imagine there's probably not many Filipinos listening here, but, you know, these, these distinctions can apply. And you also have countries that are territorial for some time, right? Like Chile is, uh, is territorial for the first three years uh, of you staying there. Uh, Dominican Republic, depending on the visa you get, it's forever, but... If you get on the wrong visas, it's only uh, two years of territorial system. Uh, New Zealand, uh, you have that for like four years um, as well. So a lot of these are temporary programs and not forever. So you know, be, be mindful that you don't get locked into a country that after some time is going to tax you on everything you have. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think, uh, you know, we're, we're speaking at a... Um, a decently advanced level, or at least we have sort of an, an assumed understanding of what these things are. Um, but maybe for someone who's new to some of these concepts, you could basically, could you break down the difference between residency-based taxation, territorial-based taxation, and then citizenship-based taxation? Sure. So residence-based taxation is what you have in most of the world, which is 
if you are a tax resident in the country, which generally means like you have your center of life uh, interest there or you spend over 183 days there, then you will be taxed on your worldwide income. That is the most common uh, type of taxation. Then you have the territorial taxation, which we mentioned already. You're taxed on locally sourced income, but not on foreign sourced income. Uh, you have countries which have like this kind of in-betweener where it's actually residence-based, but for some years you have a territorial system. And then you also have this citizenship-based taxation, which you only have like fully in the U.S. and Eritrea, where it doesn't matter where you go, uh, you're still a tax resident. And I, I remember I asked a uh, Eritrean guy, cab driver, and I said, man, like you're under the same thing as the Americans. You're taxed on your worldwide income. And I think he said something like, um, he's like, no, no, you don't have to pay anything. But if you want services in Eritrea, you want to get your birth certificate, then you're going to have to pay and sort of get caught up in it. Uh, but you can just kind of not pay as long as you don't get services or you don't go back <laughs> something like that <laughs> I, I heard something that like if you still have family in eritrea and you're not paying then uh, you know they, they threaten your family and they they do a bit more shady kinds of things like human rights violations <laughs> anyway anyway so um <laughs> so the the big thing is that uh uh you're i'd say pretty much all european countries and Canada, and where else? Uh, but uh, those are probably the big markets. Those are residency-based taxation countries, right? So exactly. Can Canada and Europe are residency-based taxation countries. And if you are a resident, if you are a permanent resident, a tax resident, then you're going to be paying on your worldwide income. And so basically what people are doing with Statenlos uh really started popularizing the idea of in Europe is basically just changing your residency so that it's not Germany, so that it's not Austria and change it to Panama, change it to Dubai, change it to any of these territorial tax countries um, such that you're not going to be taxed on your worldwide income because you're no longer a resident, right? And so then we get into the, the conversation of you know, what, what are the benefits of a territorial tax country? And to me, I think the big one is, is that you can live there year round, 365 days a year, be a tax resident and still pay no tax. So that's kind of the difference between residency based and territorial based, right? Exactly. Um, we could still mention the other, other two types, uh, the ones that, there's really no income tax at all, like you just mentioned for the UAE right. or right. for Monaco or for like the Bahamas. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's generally either small islands or uh, very rich, um, very rich, like oil rich countries, right? In, in the Gulf, that's generally where you have uh, no taxes uh, at the no income tax at all. Uh, and you also have some countries that have this uh, non domiciled. Uh, system, which is a bit, it's similar to the territorial tax system, but a bit worse, right? Where the difference is in the territorial tax system, everything that is foreign sourced is tax-free. You know, it doesn't matter if you bring it to the country or you can use it or not. Whereas in these non-DOM countries like the UK, 
Ireland, Cyprus, Malta, Mauritius, Japan, South Korea, uh, some Caribbean countries as well, then your foreign sourced income is tax-free as long as it is not brought into or used in the country, right? So if you, you know, you have dividend income from, from a company abroad, then it goes to a company, like a bank account that you also have abroad, no tax there. If you spend it while traveling abroad, no tax there. But if you use it to cover your life expenses within the country, or if you bring it to a local bank account, then it's in the progressive taxation. Yeah, because that would be, I guess, considered repatriating the money, um, which to me, I would, I wouldn't even do that under a territorial tax system either. Like, I don't think it's a good idea to earn a bunch of money offshore and then bring it into Panama or whatever, because um, I, I think under a territorial tax system that could lead to, to issues. How do you, how do you? uh define the two again as well because i think the non-dom one is is very underrated and growing um to, could you just explain sort of what the maybe the 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 key markers or differences are between uh w that make the non-dom system unique yeah so i would say it's the um, it's the part about uh, one, the re repatriation, right? Like there's there's not really any tax if you bring the foreign income to the country in a territorial tax country, right? So if you're in Uruguay and you bring in that foreign income, that's not going to have any additional tax. Uh, it's the same tax treatment if you keep it abroad or if you bring it in. Whereas in these non-DOM countries, if you bring the money in, then it starts being taxed. Or even if you spend it locally, like with a credit card, that officially counts as having brought the money in. So you also have really? to acquire it and pay it. Um, the other difference is that territorial tax systems are generally available for everyone, right? In most countries, except the Philippines. Uh, but in most of these territorial tax countries, it's, it's a system that is also accessible to the locals, right? Like if you're a local and you have foreign income, that's also tax-free. Whereas these non-DOM countries are exclusively for expats, right? The locals generally cannot access this non-DOM yeah, system. That's a good point. Only that's if you're point. a foreigner. So if you're Japanese and you want to use this uh, non-permanent resident uh, thing in Japan, sorry, it's not going to work. And this non-DOM status, was this uh, invented by the British? Because I know it is pretty big there and famously used by, you know, the, the Russian billionaires and the Pakistani billionaires who live in London uh, under non-DOM status and, and kind of don't pay tax. Was it, was it, inspired by the British. I know, I think you did talk at some point about uh, how this concept has grown in popularity. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a British tradition. Um, I don't remember exactly the story, but it's something about like the, by the time of the, uh, where you had the colonial empire from, from the UK that, you know, you could uh, send your, your children to the colonies and then, uh, you know, they could keep their, their foreign income tax-free, right? Like their, the, the money that they made outside uh, of, the, of the country and not have it taxed. It's, it's something in, in that manner, right? Where it's still related to the, to the old uh, crown colonies. But nowadays you still have it, right? And the UK is the country where it's the most debated, uh, for sure. And um, that's also something that is... Um, you know, it changes uh, between countries and depending also on, on the laws. 
that there is these restrictions where they want to abolish the the non-dom system or they want to restrict it, right? So uh, in the UK, after you live, I think it's seven years out of the last 10 years, something like this, uh, then you have to start paying like a 30,000 pound lump sum tax every year to keep the system you know, mm-hmm. active. And then after some more years, it goes up to 60,000 pounds. And then after, I think, like 15 years living in the country, then you just lose it altogether. You can't uh, extend it. Um, so, And you, you have similar regulations in, for example, Japan or uh, South Korea, where after like 10 years living in the country, uh, then you can't use it anymore, right? So it's, it's also seen as a more temporary uh, thing to grow and uh, you know not pay tax on your wealth, but eventually you're you're gonna lose it. Hmm. I see. I see one version of the future where there comes to be a lot of international pressure on territorial tax countries um, because because uh, you know obviously the remote work and digital nomad thing is going to continue to grow, and I think at some point there's just going to be too many people taking advantage of this. And the first thing they're going to do is look at the territorial tax countries and probably maybe the IMF or something is going to say that everyone needs to do residency based, something like that. But I can see this non-DOM thing sort of squeaking under the radar and <laughs> and sort of like getting less heat or just being sort of like a new way of doing things. Because as you said, it's 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 a, something from the pr- British tradition that has now become popular, and I think you said Korea, Japan, Cyprus, different places, and so I think um, there might be a move from the tax-free and territorial tax countries to uh, to special economic zones and to non-dom status, and basically just sort of like alternative alternative ways of providing incentives to people that just seem a little bit more politically palatable. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think the best example you can look up, uh, look to is the European Union, right? Because it is a, like, is a harmonizing entity. They don't want anyone to be having these special uh, regimes. And you have no territorial tax country within the EU, right? no real special economic zones in most of it. But it's also kind of a white pill, like it's a hopeful thing that even within the EU, you have so many tax loopholes, right? So in the outermost regions of the EU, you have the two special economic zones in the Canaries and Madeira. But you also have, for example, uh, in Cyprus, where they, in Malta, where they have this non-DOM regime, uh, you have some countries that they don't tax dividends if they're coming from the EU, for example, uh, like Estonia and uh, Latvia, I think was it. And then you have countries that have these um, like small company regimes, right? Like in Romania, where you pay 1% tax on your turnover. So that's another way to give some tax incentives. Uh, you have countries like Poland and Hungary, which are adding these uh, this Estonian taxation model where you don't pay uh, corporate tax until the moment that you distribute the dividends, right? So while you're, as long as you keep the money within the company and reinvest it, it's tax-free. So it's it's really nice to see how even within this restrictive environment of the European Union that tries to take away any tax loopholes, uh, you still have a lot of countries finding out different ways to provide tax incentives and, and be competitive. Uh, that's something that actually keeps me very hopeful. Yeah. And I was thinking we could double click on 
Portugal for a second, since we're talking about Europe. Um, a lot of digital nomads are moving to Portugal right now. It's becoming increasingly popular uh, among Europeans, among Americans. It seems everyone is moving to Portugal. Lisbon's the next big hotspot. So could you tell us a little bit about uh, what some of the programs are in Portugal, be it the NHR program seems to be extremely popular, and some of the other ways that people could uh, live in Portugal in a, a tax advantaged way. For sure. So this is actually another way that these company, uh, these countries find uh, a way to give tax incentives, right? These temporary uh, special programs. So uh, Italy has one, Spain has one, Portugal has one, where for a number of years you get some tax advantages. And in the case of Portugal, for self-employment income and for employment income from a, a big list of professions, you pay a fixed 20% which might not sound like the lowest tax, but if you consider that the normal Portuguese pays up to 50% something, uh, it's very advantageous. And you also get 0% tax on some kinds of foreign income, but it's it's kind of a complicated thing. It's not simply territorial. Uh, it has to be from countries that are not in the blacklist, for example, unless they have a tax treaty with Portugal, then it's actually okay. And there must have been the possibility of taxation in the country of origin. So it's something that really depends on the tax treaty between Portugal and that country. So it's something that is way more complicated than just going to a territorial tax country, right? Territorial tax is simple. Just you know, open a foreign company, get yourself some dividends and that's it. Uh, whereas Portugal needs a lot more planning, but you can be tax-free on a lot of foreign uh, passive income, right? Like, uh, again, dividends, uh, royalties and uh, interest and um, some other kinds of investment income and sale of assets and uh, uh, some kinds of pensions as well. So you can have 0% tax on a lot of different foreign income sources as long as it's properly planned and structured. And that's going to cost... Uh, more time and money to to plan than just going to territorial tax country and for the self-employment and the employment income you have 20 percent fixed plus social security and i think that's just on like locally sourced right i think if it's foreign if it's foreign earned salary income and whatnot i think that is uh zero percent um in practice, it's going to be 20% like almost all of the time. Uh, it's They have it 0% if it has been taxed at the other country, right. basically. So if, if, you paid, right, right, right. If, you're, if you're providing services to Germany and it has been taxed there, then Portugal doesn't tax it. Right. So country, you could do like, say, the Romania thing, pay 1% and then say like, look, Portugal, we are paying something. And then so Portugal will leave you alone. Yeah, so Romania is a is a company that works while you're in Portugal. So you can have a Romanian company uh, and then you distribute dividends to yourself in Portugal. There's still going to be some withholding tax on the Romanian side. It's like uh, 5% on dividends. And uh, yeah, then it's going to be tax-free in Portugal. But you also have to keep in mind that Portugal, as an EU country, has these restrictions on foreign, um, like on controlled foreign companies and like these effective management rules, which means that you can't just like open a, a foreign company that doesn't have any real substance and expect it to not pay taxes in Portugal, 
right? You have to actually have a local director in the country of incorporation and you need to have a real office that's not just like a post box or a lawyer's address. So you need to have all of this local substance in the country of incorporation so that Portugal will accept this company as valid and, you know, as, so for it so that it remains legal. And that also has some more administrative costs, right, of keeping this infrastructure, the substance. But in the end, yeah, you can pay 0% tax on the dividends you receive in Portugal. Right, right. I think I think uh, the way I think about the Portugal one is y- you could, if you're already paying taxes somewhere, then you could add the Portugal to your portfolio and it wouldn't add any additional taxes ideally because they, as long as you're paying somewhere, you can basically just add a Portuguese residency to your, you know, residency portfolio and Portugal is not going to ask for anything more from you because you're already being taxed like in your home country. That's the way I'm kind of thinking about it. Hopefully that makes sense where like if you're paying taxes in the States or, or wherever, even France or something, you could just sort of add uh, add like an additional residency in Portugal, kind of be like a double resident or something, and you're probably not going to pay anything extra in Portugal. So that that's the one way I thought that it could work out cool. And then you could either sort of live in Portugal or have the ability to now live in Europe, basically tax-free, travel all around Europe. Uh, you know, due to your Portuguese residency and, uh, you know, you're, you're working towards citizenship in a country where, you know, you're, you're not paying any additional taxes. So I think it could work for a lot of sort of like quote unquote normies who are already paying taxes. I think if you're, if you're already sophisticated and have like a Dubai or Cayman type setup, maybe it's not the program for you, but I think if you're already paying taxes somewhere, I think you could probably add Portugal and, uh, and, and, and see benefit from that. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It's not going to be like completely 0% tax because, for example, if you receive a salary uh, or you're self-employed, then there's also the social security costs, right? That's also something that you have to keep in mind. And um, depending on, on where your company is, you're going to have to also pay a lot more to have the substance on it. So it's not something that is going to be like, oh, zero extra costs added for being a Portugal tax resident. But I think right. it well, is let's, just say, let's just say you're like a dentist or something, right? Uh, you're a dentist in the US or in, in, in Brazil or something. Um, so there's not even a company. I think you can still go get residency in Portugal and then they'll see that that dentist income is being taxed in Brazil or being taxed locally, wherever. And then so, you know, Br- Portugal is okay with that, I think, right? Yeah, on, on the tax side, yes. Uh, yeah. But the you still have social security contributions in um, in Portugal, if I remember correctly. And um, I, like, I, I think Portugal is a very interesting residency if you either want to spend a lot of time in Europe and you're a nomad, right? And you're going to be traveling around and, and counting for citizenship or also if you want to uh, stay there. But uh, like as a maybe as a backup plan B, while you're still fully taxable somewhere and then you also have to pay additional things because of, of Portugal, 
especially if you have a company, right, uh, with this uh, CFC rules, then maybe it doesn't make that much sense. But if you're an employee or self-employed and you already pay tax somewhere, then, yeah, as, as an NHR, uh, Portugal is going to credit that and uh, you're not going to be double taxed on that. I, I think that makes sense for a lot of people because I think uh, if you can set up a plan B in Portugal, hopefully not pay like Social Security or whatever, but, you know, just just set up a plan B there. Um, you know, you're continuing to live your normal life somewhere else and just sort of there's there's very low physical presence requirements, work towards a passport. Uh, definitely seems to make sense to me. Yeah, and I think another another point about Portugal is just how easy it is to immigrate in the sense of how many immigration options you have, right? For the golden visa, which is the investment one, it is uh, considerably cheaper than going to the UK or Ireland, uh, which are you know the other English-speaking countries in the in Europe. And you also have the visa for opening a local company, and you have a visa for if you can prove some passive income and they're also adding a visa now so you can look for a local job even if you want to you know have if you want to work in Portugal and they're also uh, creating a digital nomad visa and they're creating a visa for people from Portuguese speaking countries and you know they're just creating visas all the time right so they really are trying to attract as much people as possible mm-hmm. what's what's it like spending time in Portugal as a Brazilian I think I remember you had some tweets uh, kind of making some jokes about uh, <laughs> kind of about stuff in Portugal because you, you have spent some time there, right? Yeah, yeah. I stayed, um, I think, around three months uh, in Cascais, uh, which is like Lisbon um, region. Mm-hmm. And I also got to travel a bit uh, through the country, but living in... Um, in Cascais mostly. And I mean, it's, it's really nice. The, the weather is great. I was there in uh, spring, summer, and you know, it's just sunny all the time. That's, uh, that's fantastic. If you're you know looking to sun max, uh, the water is cold though. It's, it's not like you're, you know, in the Mediterranean or in a lot of uh, like Caribbean beaches, that kind of thing. You know, it's, it's going to be a, a Wim Hof <laughs> cold bathing experience. Uh, but it's still really cool. And um, what else? What else can I mention? As a Brazilian specifically, it's it's funny because you find Brazilians everywhere. Like I'm I'm walking in Cascais and I hear uh, you know the the Brazilian a Brazilian speaking almost every corner. And like this is a what two hundred thousand people town. But even there, there was like you know, six Brazilian restaurants and Brazilian food shops. So it's, it's basically like you can get all of the, the things you like eating and uh, experiencing in Brazil, um, living in Portugal. So that's, that's why there's also a lot of Brazilians moving there at the moment. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Um, Let's talk a bit about birth tourism. And uh, maybe we could start with birth tourism in Brazil. Uh, which I think you said would be one of the best countries to do it. Absolutely. And I stand firm by this conviction. Uh, So just uh, giving a a quick overview, birth tourism is the idea that, you know, you have a wife or you have a husband and you're expecting. And instead of giving birth in your home country, you're going to go to another country to give birth because in the country you've chosen, they have this use uh, solis system, which means that 
a person who is born in that territory is considered a national. You know, they get citizenship by birth. Uh, this is in contrast to use sanguinis uh, countries where you get the citizenship by being the son of a citizen, right? It doesn't matter if you're born there or not. This matters if you have this blood uh, connection. So most of Latin America is directly use solis, right? If you just go and, you know, if your son is born there, he's going to automatically be a citizen, with the exception of Chile and Colombia, where you have to actually be, the parents have to be resident in the country first so that the child gets automatic citizenship. However, in the case of Chile, if you wait a bit, uh, like if the, the child waits until they're 18, they, they then can request the citizenship. So that's the, like the idea of birth tourism, right? And then the child gets the citizenship and generally as the parent of a national child, you can immediately get permanent residency, right? Like under these uh, family reunification uh, visas. So that's the main idea. Now, why I consider Brazil to be the best country to do this? Um, you go, you give birth the child gets the Brazilian citizenship. Then after one year of permanent residency, the parents can also get the Brazilian citizenship. In the case of Mexico and in the case of Argentina, uh, for example, it's two years, which is not that long actually for getting a citizenship. It's quite fast, but Brazil is the fastest, right? One year, you don't get anything faster than that unless you do a citizenship by investment, right? But then you're uh, investing, you know, over 100K. And the Brazilian passport is, for Latin American standards, I would say uh, the best because you have the Mercosur uh, block in South America, which is basically almost all of South America with exception of Venezuela and um I think like French Guiana is also not part of, of Mercosur, but for basically all of South America, you have this freedom of movement where as a Mercosur citizen, you can just go there and request residency, right? Like you don't have to do an investment. You don't have to prove uh, that you have a lot of income. You don't have to make these big bank deposits. No, you can just go there. You're a, a Mercosur citizen and you can request uh, residency. And you don't even need to like translate all the documents, right? And uh, if you go to Uruguay or, or Paraguay, they accept the Brazilian originals in Portuguese. So that gives you this freedom of movement in an entire continent, basically. Uh, this applies also if you do, for example, Argentina or Uruguay or Paraguay, like any of these countries, if you give birth there and you get a, you know, you get a Mercosur citizenship, then you have this freedom of movement in Mercosur. And I, I think for, for the Americans listening, uh, to sort of put this in context, I think Americans are aware that people fly to the US to give birth so that the baby can be American. So we're familiar with birth tourism in the US. I think where the distinction or the difference is here is that um, in the US version of birth tourism where people fly in from from china or, or, or mexico or whatever um is that the parents do not typically get residency out of it or at least it's not a straightforward path to becoming a resident just because your your kid was born there so typically what happens is you know the 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 chinese people they they fly to the u.s they have the kid in the u.s but then they they basically have to go home because there's no path to residency just because the kid was born there. But in Latin America, when your kid is born there, 
that's enough of a, a reason to get, to get a residency permit in these countries. And typically it's under a family reunification visa, as you mentioned. So you can basically go to the Brazilian government or the Mexican government where this also works well and say, Hey, my kid was just born in Colombia. My, my kid was, sorry, my kid was just born in Mexico. My kid was just born in Brazil. Um, I would like to re reunify our family. So I'm asking for permanent residency in Brazil so that the family could be together and they'll give it to you. No problem. Right. So I think that's, um, that's what needs to be understood here. Yeah. There's some bureaucratic hurdles, right? Latin America overall has some, some level of bureaucracy, mm -hmm. uh, but you know, you generally get permanent residency right away. So you're immediately on the track to, to citizenship. And um, yeah, so like in this entire uh, South American block, you, you get a citizenship there and you can move to any other country. Uh, so that's a lot of freedom of movement you have. And then also Brazil is part of the CPLP, right? Which is this community of Portuguese speaking countries, which mm -hmm. last year approved an agreement that they're all going to roll out a CPLP visa, right? So that you as a citizen of the a CPLP country can move to any CPLP country. And you're already seeing some countries uh, rolling out these visas, right? So Cape Verde already did it, if I remember correctly. Uh, Portugal just uh, announced their, theirs as well. So, you know, as a Brazilian, you have the right to go and move to Cape Verde or Portugal or Angola or Mozambique. Of course, these are not uh, as high ranked countries, except Portugal, that's very high ranked. Uh, but it's still, you know, more mobility. And mm -hmm. yeah, but overall, I would say like the top uh, passports in in LATAM would be Mexico, uh, Brazil, Argentina, and also Chile. Uh, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but Chile has um, visa free access to the United States, right? Like they have the ESTA uh, mm -hmm. approval, which you also don't have in basically all of Latin America. So mm -hmm. that's an interesting one as well. First, you have to get residency there, uh, right? And then your child gets a nationality when they're, when they're born. But that's also an interesting one. But then it's five years uh, in Chile, if I'm not mistaken, whereas, you know, in uh, Brazil is one year, Mexico and Argentina, two years, Peru is two years as well. Uh, then Uruguay is like three years and Paraguay, if I'm not mistaken, is uh, four or three as well. So, um, I so basically here's what's going to happen. So I convince my wife, uh, I'm not actually married, but I convince my wife to, that we're going to have our baby in Brazil. So we go down there, we fly down, we have our baby in Brazil, we take the baby's birth certificate and then we, you know, we give that to our lawyer, they go to the immigration office and they get us permanent residency. And then we're going to wait one year with that permanent residency. And after that, we can ask for Brazilian citizenship. Here's the thing though, permanent residents in Brazil need to, are, are being taxed on their worldwide income, right? So how do you sell this program to someone that has a lot of worldwide income and doesn't want to, uh, you know, maybe they want their kid to have Brazilian citizenship, they're down to have it too, but they don't wanna get pulled into the Brazil tax net um, how, how, how can they maneuver this process? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're going to have to pay some tax in Brazil. But as mentioned, Brazil still has a lot of maneuverability, right? So you can just keep an offshore holding company to hold all your investments or even just have an offshore company to so you can still provide your services abroad. And as long as you don't bring that income to your personal account, right? as long as you don't distribute it to you as an individual and keep it in the corporation or the holding or the trust or whatever, uh, then it's not taxed in Brazil, right? So you don't have to okay. bring your income to Brazil. And and does that tax. have to be a Brazilian company or or offshore? No, no, it's an offshore company. Yeah, if you have a Brazilian company, uh, then that also can be attractive. As mentioned, you can pay like between uh, 5 to 15% tax with a Brazilian company. And that's okay. all you're going to pay because when you distribute dividends, okay. they are not So let's taxed. just say you're an American guy, you have an American company, um, whatever. You just do construction stuff in the U.S. Um, is, is that person going to be able to stay out of the Brazil tax net for the most part? Yeah, so you know what they earn in their in their company and that stays in the company is not going to be taxed, right? It's a company providing services to the American market, mm-hmm. and you know that's okay. And then whatever he brings to his personal, you know, accounts, whatever he distributes to himself as an individual, will be taxed in Brazil progressively. Uh, from zero so, so it, and you're five. talking about so that like say the guy with the construction company in the states, if he pays himself a normal hundred k a year salary in the states, is Brazil going to look to tax that, or are they is Brazil only going to tax what gets brought into Brazil? No, well, here's where we get into the gray area. Um, whatever he distributes to something that belongs to him as an individual, right? Like a personal account, be it in the States mm-hmm. or Brazil, then mm-hmm. that should be declared uh, as Brazilian income. Right. The, however, I, I do have an anecdotal evidence uh, of a lot of people that, you know, they, they mostly, like a Brazilian IRS, mostly tracks things that are running inside Brazil, right? So if you have a local employment or if you like sell a local home and don't declare it, then you're screwed. Uh, but if your income comes from abroad, uh, you know, I, I know some people who live like four years in Brazil and never paid any taxes because they just never declared it. And since their income was foreign, uh, the IRS never noticed them. Uh, but right. that's already a gray area. That's not legal. Uh, we're not recommending anything illegal here. Uh, right. But what I, what, what I do wanted to mention was like, you have this foreign company from this American guy and he's living in Brazil. Let's say he earns, um, you know, 100K uh, or let's say like he has a monthly salary uh, like he earns 10k a month in his company. Mm-hmm. However, to live in Brazil, he only really needs like 3k. You know, that's already uh, that gives you a great lifestyle in Brazil. Then you distri- he distributes these 3k to himself. That will be taxed progressively up to uh, you know 27.5 percent is the is the maximum rate. So it's going to be probably something like 10, 15, 20 percent tax in Brazil on that income. Um, but then you know, the rest, the remaining 7K remains in the company and it's not taxed right, at right. all. And then yeah, when so I guess the- long story short, the idea would be if you're going to do one of these programs in Mexico, which is two years of, of residency or in Brazil of one year residency, I think just what you would do is just sort of make it years where you're not pulling down a lot of personal earned income and just basically just keep your income in a company somewhere. And don't pull it down except for like the bare minimum you need for expenses. 
Exactly. So you're going to have one year where you're going to pay some tax on what you distribute to yourself to live in Brazil. And then once you get the citizenship, you can just do that declaration of uh, departure that Brazil has. And then, boom, you're out of the Brazil tax net. So, you know, that uh, process can also be done in like a day, basically. You just leave Brazil, you provide this, uh, it's kind of like an income tax declaration that you're leaving and uh, you're no longer in the Brazilian tax net. Yeah, sorry. Uh, break that down again, because I think that's the big question is, so you do the year or two in Brazil, you get the Brazilian passport, then how do you get out successfully? Because I think this is underreported is... Uh, uh, often the difficulty of getting out or the, or just the steps that you need to take by showing proof that you have tax residency elsewhere, things like that. Yeah, so that is something that you might need in other countries. Luckily, you don't need it in Brazil. So as a resident of Brazil, if you want to stop being a tax resident, what you have to do is you book a flight somewhere else. You enter the flight, you leave Brazil. Once you're out of Brazil, then you have to handle hand, uh, hand in this communication of definitive departure, which can be uh, handed in up until February of the next year, which is basically like, you know, just giving your local ID number saying, hey, I left the country. And then you also have to hand in this income tax declaration, which is uh, until April of the following year. And it's a tax declaration from, you know, the 1st of January until the date that you, you said was your departure, like the day you effectively left mm -hmm. uh, the Brazilian territory with definitive intent. And yeah, once you hand the two of them, you're no longer a tax resident in Brazil. You do not have to prove a new tax residency. So that's a good thing uh, that makes it easy to you know get in, quick to get the citizenship and then easy to get out. And it's a good citizenship on top of that. There is one point, though, and I would like to point that out for all of birth tourism and not just Brazil. Uh, generally, to naturalize, you need to have uh, knowledge of the local language. So, so that is a point you have to keep in mind, right? Like if you speak nada of Spanish or nada of uh, Portuguese and you are not really that keen into learning it, then that's probably not for you because... You know, you need to pass this language test and you need to pass generally like these tests on a bit of the, you know, local laws and the local uh, history. So you should have some interest for the country you're doing that um, because, you know, if you just mm -hmm. go there and you learn nothing of the language, nothing of the culture, nothing of the history, uh, you're generally not going to pass the citizenship tests. Mm -hmm. um, and my other concern would be that uh, so one year permanent residency and you can apply. Sounds good. But, you know, it's bureaucracy. It's Latin America. Uh, it's a naturalization process. After your, your application is submitted, how long are you waiting to get your naturalization approved, to get your citizenship approved? And I think you technically don't need to stay in the country or you can like, I think you technically maybe could give up the tax residency prior to having the passport in hand uh, to ensure that you're only there for one year, but it's still a little tricky, right? Um, they might not look at your application too favorably if they saw that you kind of already left the tax net, right? So I feel like even though on paper, it's only one year, it could end up being like two, three years, right? While you're waiting to get approved. Yeah, the citizenship applications does take uh, some months, uh, I think, but it shouldn't be as long like three years. 
uh, to get naturalized. That's already like kind of a stretch. Uh, the it's probably going to be like you know one year plus like maybe like one year and a half up to two years. Yeah, I'd um, say re- realistically, right? You're probably looking at yeah. actually like two years or like whatever whatever the um, whatever the requirement is. Say it's one year in Mex one year in Brazil, two years in Mexico. I would probably add an additional year of tax residency as like a buffer or as like an ex- something to expect while you're basically waiting for your application to process. Yeah, that's that's very prudent. I would I would say that like even in countries that are more efficient, it can probably take uh, that time for getting the residency and the citizenship approval. Probably the citizenship in most countries is what takes longer, right? In some countries, you can get residency in a week, uh, but yeah, I, I think but that's here's really here's the best thing is just to get is just to do the birth tourism in a territorial tax country, right? So hopefully that's we and that that that's a good thread idea for Twitter for you. Um, is birth tourism in zero tax or territorial tax countries? Because then you know your baby's born there, you're chilling with the baby in Nicaragua or whatever it is, and you're just going to pay zero tax while you're waiting for to you know while you're passing the time to to earn the citizenship. Probably makes more sense, right? Yeah, th- that's a good threat idea. Yeah, I mean these these countries do take more time to get the citizenship, right? So it's kind of a trade off. Do you want to pay like one year of taxes in Brazil, two years of taxes in Mexico, uh, maybe even extra year in that, or do you want to pay like five years in um in a place like uh, Nicaragua? I think it's five years for, for mm-hmm. four years. Right, but th- they'll still have low physical presence requirements, hopefully. So it's kind of a mix of of those factors, I guess. So it's like physical presence because in Mexico, you got to be there 18 of the 24 months. I'm not sure if Brazil has physical presence in that one year. Yeah, you you should spend uh, most of the year in Brazil. That is a Mm -hmm. that is a point. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So cool. So birth tourism, very, very fun topic. Um, (laughs) Could could definitely do whole episodes just on that. what what about your your personal internationalization setup, Francisco? Um, you know, don't you, you know don't feel obliged to give away anything that that you don't make public normally. But how are you thinking about internationalization for yourself? So you have Brazilian passport, you have an Austrian passport. What what are some of the things that that make the most sense for you? Are you still a Brazilian resident? I'm no longer a Brazilian resident for I think two years now. I did the permanent uh, leave. The in terms of citizenship, I'm pretty fine with where I am, right? I have a European citizenship, I have a South American citizenship. It already covers pretty much everything I could want. And even if I wanted another citizenship, Austria is very restrictive on getting new citizenships. So you have to like first mm-hmm. ask permission, and they almost never give it. So I'm I'm gonna just stick with what I have. Uh, in terms of company structures, SETI is currently established in Estonia. And Estonia is a very interesting jurisdiction because it is one place where you can be tax-free while doing business in the EU uh, because when you distribute dividends, then there is 20% uh, tax at the moment of the distribution. But they allow you to take out a salary which is not taxable in Estonia. Uh, It's only taxable in your country of residency. At the moment, I do not have a country of of tax residency. So I take out these salaries and I don't have to pay tax anywhere. Uh, that is not a, a completely long-term solution because I, I do want to get 
a residency soon. I want to get a residency in Paraguay around January, February. That's probably when I'm going to do the permanent residency there. I'm not going to be a tax resident. So for now, it's still okay. But if I were to become a tax resident, then, you know, you could have issues with the local salary. So... You know, by then I'll probably pivot to something like a Prospera company or even a U.S. LLC. Okay, gotcha. Um, and oh, and another uh, kind of big topic I wanted to discuss that I think goes underreported is some of the opportunities that are available uh, for for Latinos and and people from Latin American countries. So we talked a bit about the fr- freedom of movement in uh, within Latin America. And so I think this is interesting for, for some of us that are interested in having a Latin American passport as well. Um, and sort of what are the benefits of having that? But so you talked about how a Brazilian, uh, can move to any country in South America. So they can just, a Brazilian can just take a flight to Colombia and ask for residency, become a Colombian resident. And then they have maybe, I think like a two year path to citizenship in Colombia. And it's I think one year, it's uh, one it's year. Easy, yeah. You have a and lot so of so all the all the Latin America. American people can basically like move to each other's countries, and they have very fast paths to citizenship. Like typically one or two years. It's pretty crazy, right? Because you could just keep popping around or or do multiple at once and have a lot of Latin American citizenships real quick. Yeah, that is something that you have. Um, so in South America, we have this mobility. Within uh, Central America, you also have the... Um, uh, like a, yeah, that's uh, that economic block that has some more um, you know, benefits from people within, uh, from these countries. You also have in the Caribbean, uh, CARICOM. So you have like a lot of these regional blocks kind of. And you also have these uh, naturalization, like sped up naturalization procedures in Latin America for people who are originally from Latin America. So, for example, Panama is very interesting in this regard. Uh, if you're a Latin American or Spanish, I believe, if you, you, it takes the time to naturalize that a Panamanian would take in your country. So, for example, you know, it takes a Panamanian four years to naturalize in Brazil, then it takes four years for Brazil to naturalize in Panama. Two years in Argentina, then two years uh, for an Argentinian in Panama. So that's also a very interesting system. And like, like a lot of the Central American countries have the same thing. And another interesting fact is that Spain has the same uh, rule, right? If you're Latin American, uh, you can get citizenship in Spain with two years of residency. So that is the fastest European citizenship by far, uh, but you have to be Latin American or from Portugal or Equatorial Guinea, like, you know, former uh, Spanish colonies and so on. Yeah, I was going to take it there, how uh, people from any Latin American country can go to, I think they can even go to Portugal. It's sort of like an Iberian Peninsula thing, right? Where... Um, yeah, it's just a, a very fast path to residency. And I look at that and I'm like, I'm like, why are any Latinos in their country of origin? Because you can either go to Europe and become a citizen in like two years, or you could just go to Colombia or somewhere else in Latin America. And again, become a citizen in one or two years. Um, they just have, all, and then they just have all these opportunities. It seems crazy to me. 
Yeah, I think it's partially one because of lack of money, right? It does take some money to do, uh, to you know, get an international flight and uh, move abroad and do all of that relocation thing and get the residence permits and, and all that. In Europe, a lot of people still don't have that financial opportunity, but a lot of people also don't have the knowledge of these opportunities. And that's something we're mm-hmm. trying to uh, help exactly. fix, right? A lot of them don't know that you could naturalize in two years in Europe. Right. And I think it's, it's these tweets and stuff that we're doing that says, are, are you from Latin America? You can become Spanish in two years. <laughs> you know what I mean? And all that. And so, um, and the, it could, it could even work. I think, I think the rule that I've, I've really seen is that if you're a naturalized citizen of these countries that you don't get the same benefits, what I mean by that is, so say, uh, a gringo like myself, we go down, we get Colombian citizenship or whatever. Um, we can't then go to other Latin American countries or we can't then go to Spain and say, oh, hey, I'm Latino. Uh, I get citizenship in two years. I think it doesn't work like that. However, if you have your kids in Latin America, or I think even if just your kids have a Latin American passport, then they can take advantage of this, right? Because they'll be sort of born with that passport. They didn't naturalize. They were born with it. And then I think even if they weren't born there, right? So let's just say, let's just say I have a couple Latin American passports. Let's just say I have a Mexican passport. And let's just say I pass that to my kid, even if he was born in Canada or Europe or whatever. Um, he's Mexican at birth. Yep. And so even though he wasn't born in Mexico, he wasn't born in Latin America, he's Mexican at birth, he's considered Latino, and then he could have those benefits of one year to citizenship in Latin America, two years to citizenship in Spain, two years to citizenship in Portugal, right? So I think that's an extremely underreported benefit. Yeah, for sure. That is something that I'm still trying to get more anecdotal evidence of like people who um, you know, got a citizenship in Latin America and then try to do it in Spain or try to do that thing in uh, other Latin American countries. Because generally, I think in the legislation, it does say something like uh, that you have it by birth or that you're a, a natural yeah, of that natural country, not just a c- citizen. But, you know, it's worth a try, right? Like if you go there with a citizenship certificate and you're speaking fluent Spanish, uh, you know, maybe they let you through. It's worth trying. Or you could do like a two-step. And so let's just say you're a gringo like me. First, I get citizenship in Mexico. And then I get another citizenship in Latin America. uh, Kind of, uh, and I put like Mexico on those documents or something. And so maybe it could sort of like obscure the fact that I was even born in Canada or the United States. (laughs) Right. And and then you could take that, that second Latin American one and take that to Spain or something. And be like, oh yeah, <laughs> I'm I'm Latino. Like, I was Mexican and then Colombian. I don't know. That's that's a little far fetched, but um, but yeah, I mean, as a Latino, definitely a lot of options because you have all these uh, territorial tax countries in your backyard. You have quick paths to citizenship in other Latin American countries, and a quick path to citizenship uh, in the uh, Iberian Peninsula as well. And I, I, I think it works both ways as well. So I think people from the Iberian Peninsula also have a quicker path to citizenship in almost every Latin American country. 
Yeah, generally you have, um, if you're a Spaniard, you can get faster citizenship in all of these Spanish-speaking countries. And mm-hmm. also, like, if you're from a Portuguese-speaking country, you can get citizenship in Brazil in one year, right? So if you're a Portuguese who's listening to this, uh, come to Brazil. <laughs> so if someone if someone did the NHR, you think, so someone does the, the Portugal NHR, they get Portuguese citizenship, do you think that they could then take that that new Portuguese citizenship and get uh, quicker access to Brazilian citizenship? From what I talked to our Brazilian lawyers, the understanding of the law is you have to be a a national from like originally from that country. So uh, it shouldn't work. But I mean, it's it's actually faster if you just do Brazil directly, right? Than uh, do Portugal, then Brazil. Um, But I... Yeah, I, I don't think that would work. You could try it out, but at least from from what I got from our local lawyers, it shouldn't be possible. Yeah. And then let, let's talk a little bit about Paraguay and Uruguay, uh, which because uh, we've been kind of talking about South America a lot. And it seems like those and I guess Ecuador are the three main options in South America for uh, for having a, a higher degree of personal freedom, for lowering your taxes, for getting some aspects of a territorial tax system. Um, I looked into Uruguay a lot, uh, partly using your, infer, your your information, and it seemed like Uruguay doesn't really work for a lot of digital nomad types, um, but maybe it works for like more high-level entrepreneurs. Um but then Paraguay is like is like super good. But yeah, I was just hoping that maybe you could kind of talk about what are the options for people in South America. Sure. So regarding uh, Uruguay, Paraguay, this this conundrum, uh, Paraguay is easier to get permanent residency, right? You just have to uh, deposit like thirty five million guaranis, uh, I think, which is around five k USD in a bank. Uh, and then once you get the residence permit, you can take it out. So it's you don't really need to do a permanent investment there. It's just during the processing time. And then the residence permit is valid for 10 years, right? So it's uh, something very, very flexible. You don't really have to keep a residence in the country. Like you can even, after you do the procedure, you can leave. And then you can have someone ship you your cedula. So it's super flexible, right? But in terms of living there, uh, I've only been to Ciudad del Este for like one day, so I don't really have that much personal experience. But from anecdotal evidence, uh, it gets quite boring uh, after some time. It's not really the most developed country, like you know, in terms of uh, traffic and um, amenities, and you know, just overall uh, quality of life. Uh, it's probably not the country you want to stay in for like years and years and years, unless you're something like a homesteader. You want to have your farm and your personal freedom. And that kind of thing, then you know you have you can get a lot of farmland and some guns. By the way, your English is so good. <laughs> Homesteader, what Brazilian knows that term? Where did you learn English, by the way? Uh, I mean, partially work. Uh, partially, my dad also spoke English with me a lot. Uh, he used to do a lot of like international traveling for his work, and he would try to get me to to speak that as well. So, <laughs> so you you speak sure. German fluently as well. 
Yeah, yeah. I I lived in Austria for four years, and my grandpa is uh, Austrian as well. So you know, he had a lot of German books at home. And where I come from in Brazil, actually, the city is called Blumenau, and you have some other German-speaking cities there. Like you, uh-huh. you can have German in school, right? I had it for nine years in uh, elementary school. Did you? Okay, cool. Well, Sorry, just a little aside there. But yeah, but with the Paraguay thing, um, but there's basically no physical presence requirements. So I think that's another very common misconception, because you can get Brazilian or sorry, uh, Paraguayan permanent residency, and then you only have to visit like once every three years for a day. So very easy to to maintain. So I think that uh, I think we're doing a good job online of sort of dispelling the notion that a permanent residency or a citizenship needs to be the place that you live. And that we're sort of educating people on the fact that it's possible to have multiple permanent residencies. You could even have 10 permanent residencies and you don't necessarily have to live there. Um, but, but it's a good thing to have basically as a plan B at very least, and it can work into different aspects of your plan. And, uh, and, and yeah, so yeah, uh, that's important to mention, right? Yeah, it can give you a lot of benefits, right? When you're a permanent resident, uh, resident, you can, for example, get a local bank account or these kinds of things that generally are harder if you're a tourist or you have worse conditions as a tourist. Uh, you can get like a you know driver's license. You can also get a tax ID, tax certificate mm-hmm. in case any country wants to you know try to say, yeah, yeah, you, you should actually pay taxes here. Then you can actually fall back on a country to defend you, you know, like... Uh, to show, no, no, I'm already a tax resident of Paraguay. But if you don't have no tax residency and someone tries to tax you, then you have, you know, no recourse. So what do you, what do you see uh, for your plans with Paraguay? I mean, Paraguay has, um, the, the fact that you don't have to spend basically any time there uh, is, is really good for me. So I want to get it. Uh, from there, you can also use it to get some, um, some you know exchanges and bank accounts and uh, cards for example you can get a a kraken or a binance crypto account verified if you're if you're a paraguayan resident and uh, claro paraguay just like claro uruguay has a really nice sim card which works everywhere in the americas and the caribbean and in most of europe and it's you know you, you get pretty good internet you have you pay like $12 $12 a month and you have uh, like almost 20 gigabytes of, of roaming. So it's, um, I've been using the one from Claro Uruguay. Uh, and then when I get the Paraguayan residency, I'm going to switch over to, to Claro Paraguay, which is even uh, cheaper than the Claro Uruguay one. Nice. That's a good thing to have because that's a good way of building a tie. And if, if you ever want to apply for citizenship, you can sort of show that um, the, the phone bill history and that'll count as a tie. So that'll help your application. Yep, another another point of connection. That's something that Uruguay is more strict, right? Like Uruguay is gets a lot more attention from Brazilians as well because you know it's one of the stablest, uh, least corrupt, more developed. Uh, overall, like you look at all the indices, um, you know, like safety and HDI and uh, you know, lower inequality, all of this, Uruguay is at the top of South America and Latin America in general, along with uh, Chile. And Uruguay also has a lot of freedom. So, you know, I remember going to an Airbnb in Montevideo and then I go to the rooftop and I see like six um, 
plants of weed, which is something that in Brazil, you know, you could get arrested for, but there they're just growing it on the rooftops. Um, it's also the most armed country in the Americas. I think it's also like seventh most armed country in the world. You have like 30 something guns per every hundred civilians. Uruguay. Yeah. I didn't know that. It's pretty easy to get a gun there. Uh, you can get like up to three guns, uh, just claiming that you want to be able to protect yourself. So, you know, that's also pretty nice if you're a resident there and you want to be able to protect your farmland. Um, yeah, but you have more resident, like more presence requirements, right? You have to be there at least once a year to keep the residency active. And um, during the, like if you're a South American, you can just ask uh, for a permanent residency right away. But if not, then you have to get the permanent residency first. And during this time, you actually have to be spending a lot of time in the country. And then once you have the permanent residency, you have to stay there one day every year. So it has a lot more presence requirements, but it can still be tax-free for a lot of people. So on the tax side, both countries are very interesting. But on the, you know, if you're a, a, a traveler, a nomad, uh, then Paraguay is going to put less restrictions on yourself. Do you see yourself uh, doing doing something with Uruguay? Or do, does it does it line up with your personal plans? Yeah, like Uruguay, I really liked uh, being in Montevideo. Uh, you know, it was I spent there like two weeks, but I, I really liked the, the city overall. Um, you know, a lot of parks and a lot of trees and, you know, uh, beaches and nice historical centers. So overall, I think if I were to have like a base, uh, if, I think it's a good place to create a base to just like, you know, s- settle down and work. Uh, it's very close to Argentina and South Brazil, which is where I have, you know, most of my friends and family. So for me personally, I think it's a nice place to have as a base. Uh, but at the moment, I, I still want to travel more. I still want to, you know, I've only been to Uruguay and Brazil and Latin America, so I, I want to get to know more of it. Uh, before I, I create, uh, you know, ties in, in any given country. So maybe at some point, like, you know, two years, three years, but for now I'll just get the Paraguayan one and travel a lot more. Yeah, definitely. I think the the Paraguay one's a good, a good idea. Um, and then the Uruguay, I mean, that's, that's an easy drive for you too, right? You could just drive down from Florianopolis. Yeah, you even have buses from, um, I think even Buenos Aires then gets the ferry and then it goes all through Uruguay uh, until Santa Catarina. So, you know, if you live in South Brazil, it's very convenient. And Paraguay is also quite convenient. Like I have family in uh, Paraná, which is the state bordering uh, Paraguay. So for me, it would be like a five hour, six hour drive to Ciudad del Este. Yeah, man, that's awesome. Dude, I think we've dropped a lot of uh, knowledge bombs on this episode for sure. Um, I think this has been an interesting one. I, I, I'm consistently impressed by how much you know uh, for being a young guy because you're, you're what? You're like 23 years old or something? Uh, soon 23, yeah. <laughs> for now, thank you. <laughs> Crazy, man. I, I, I can't wait to see where you're going to be when you're 32, when you're 42. I think we got... Uh, you know, a future Brazilian billionaire on our hands here. Oh, as we say in Portuguese, uh, Deus te ouça, like God hear you. <laughs> <laughs> Vai com Deus. <laughs> Thanks, man. Thanks for the invite. This was a was a really great talk. Great to be Absolutely, here. Absolutely, man. Uh, yeah, dude. Like I said, I think you have so much potential. 
really looking forward to working together in the future and sort of uh, seeing ways that we can help uh, people kind of expand their options in Latin America, create a plan B and sort of demystify all these different systems. So thank you for all the writings and information that you've put out there helping to demystify things. And uh, it's, it's been really interesting to watch. Thank you, Vance. Yeah, let's, let's keep working on that. Awesome. Uh, so where can people find you and learn more about uh, what you're up to, Francisco? Yeah, so they can check out seti.io. That's the, the company in Portuguese. So if you're a Brazilian and you want to move out, uh, that would be the company. But if you don't speak Portuguese, if you're only, uh, if you don't speak English, then you should check out statenlos.ch. Uh, that's the one in English and German. So that's our international branch. And if you book a consulting there uh, in English, then I might be uh, you know, doing that uh, consulting for you as well. Awesome. Francisco, thank you so much for your time today. This was an awesome conversation and all the best. Thanks, man. Same. Have a great week.